How's everybody feeling? Good. Good. So uh, I, I, I thought long and hard about the series I was going to do. I'll wait for people to finish their conversations. So I thought long and hard about what I was going to do uh, and debated, because this is something I've been thinking about and wrestling with for at least three or four years. And I thought, uh, I'd give you the opportunity to wrestle with it as well. <laughs> so I want to talk about the shadow, the shadow self. So I'm going to lay some information foundation to start with. First thing, first principle is this, and it's self-evident. <laughs> Excuse me. We are born into a world of polarities. Polarities. What are polarities? Hot and cold is a polarity. North and south, obvious one, right? North pole, south pole. Uh, male and female. Positive and negative charges to make an electrical circuit. And then obviously light and dark, right? So we live in a world of polarity. Our problem is that we judge polarity as good or evil rather than simply as polarity. Okay. Now, we are created as a microcosm of the universe. So if you go back to the creation story, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, polarity, right? The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and God said, let there be light, polarity, light and darkness, right? And you see in there an equal amount even down to two people, one male, one female, right? So you see balanced polarity. And then when you get to where God creates Adam, it's very clear if you look at the text, and we've done this numerous times, so I'm not going to take the time to do it again, that God is creating a microcosm in Adam of the macro. So much so that each cell has a positive and negative charge. And you are binary. Two eyes, two ears. Right? Left, right, another polarity. Right? Male, female. So we have both the light and the darkness within us. And when we're talking about shadows, if you think about it, all shadows are a byproduct of light. So you cannot have light or be light and not have a shadow. So what is the human shadow? From a perspective of psychology, the human shadow contains, ready for this, all the parts of ourselves that we want to hide. <laughs> all the parts of us that we want to hide from both the world and from ourselves. So as we're navigating our way through life, we create this social self, right? And uh, the social self is the self, and, and so here's what we try to do. Let's just, whether it's in society or even to ourselves, let me see what my next image is here because I, I don't remember what I had. Yeah, let me stay here for a minute. We, we, um, we project this ourselves in the best light, right? We want to put our best foot forward to people. We want to project ourselves. We want people to think the best of us. And we have, all of us, this self-serving bias where we have a need to put ourselves in the best possible light. So in, sometimes when we're playing the victim, we're playing the victim so that we don't have to take responsibility because avoiding responsibility in relationships allows us to maintain Ourself in the light rather than looking at, gee, what did I do here to mess things up and really owning it? You, you see it? 
So if you think about your shadow as all the parts of yourself that you try to hide or that you disown, um, the more you try to put yourself in the best possible light, the more you're going to disown and deny your own shadow self. Now here's the point. What you disown about yourself, you project outside of yourself. It's not you, it's other. Got it? I'll give you a few examples of this. One of the things that we've been emphasizing for at least a year here is for you to stop disowning the divine part of you. Or you might put it this way, to stop disowning your own light. Because when we disown our light, <laughs> um, so what are ways that we do this? Uh, let, let's look at this quote from Marianne Williamson. It's one of my all-time favorite quotes. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. <clears throat> so what she's talking about there is disowning your power and disowning your light. So you can do it either way. When you disown your power and you disown your light, you project it outside of yourself. That leaves you completely at the place of effect, not cause. Because you have no power to influence or change anything. One of the ways that we do that religiously is that we take our light, we disown it, we put it completely off on God, and then we see divinity as being totally opposite or other than us. And one of the ways that religion, particularly Christian religion in the West, has encouraged us to do that is if we accept that humanity is totally depraved. This is the foundation of Calvinism. Humanity is totally depraved and all goodness resides outside of ourselves and only within God. And all light resides outside of ourselves and only with, with God. And it's not within us or part of ourselves. And this is what Marianne Williamson is speaking to here. So what we've been on a trek to do is to get you to see, no, you are the offspring of God. You have Christ within you. You have light within you. You are a divine spark. And you have the power and the ability to change circumstances through your thoughts and feelings and faith and all that stuff rather than seeing your light or divinity is totally other than you. You see it? Now, the flip side of this is also true. Because we can take our darkness, and when we don't own our darkness, we don't own our shadow, we project it onto other people, and we project it onto God. Therefore, casting a shadow upon God. And we see this in the very first story with Adam, because God comes to Adam and says, where are you? (laughs) Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? And Adam disowns responsibility for his own actions. He disowns his own part in it. He puts himself completely in the victim stance or at effect and says he blames the woman. It was the woman. But ultimately he says it was the woman that you gave to be with me. So he puts the blame on God as though God did something wrong. The very first lesson we learn about humanity in the fall. So when we're involved with religious matters, when we're trying to hear from God, when we're trying to get divine direction, we're trying to ascertain the will of God for our lives, when we disown or if we disown our shadow, we will mistake our shadow for the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God. By denying or disowning our shadow, we project it onto others. We are right, they are wrong. We have the truth or the righteous cause, and they are deceived and unrighteous. This gives birth to judgmentalism, (laughs) gossip, impatience, anger, resentment, and fear. And we know we're experiencing all those things, but the cause is outside of us. If they would do right, 
If they would act right, if they would live right, if things would change, I wouldn't be feeling resentful. My anger is justified. My anger is righteous. My opinion is right. You see it? This is how misogyny, especially in the church, gets perpetuated. Think about this. Think about this. In the West, in modern society, it's really only... Now I'm excluding Islam, because it's not mainstream in our culture, it really isn't. Mainstream in our culture, it's only in the churches that you'll find women still being suppressed and not having an equal voice, not having leadership positions, not being able to share unless they have a quote-unquote covering. Right? Why is that? Because you have a male-driven culture, watch this, that has denied human sexuality. You have a male-driven culture that says we have to eradicate every form of sexuality other than procreation. They'll never say that, but... And as a man, I'm sorry, you're just wired to procreate. So what happens is, you instead of recognizing those things are biological and chemical things that are happening inside of you, you think the woman's causing it, and because you're trying to suppress your sex drive, it works its way out. The way the shadow works, I'm disowning and denying my shadow, so the way it works out is I'm suppressing women in the church. Get it? So, sister, you can't, you know, you better make sure you got your elbows covered because you might be causing the men to stumble. Or make sure your skirt doesn't come up and show your kneecap. Because it's your problem that I'm having a problem. And if you love your brothers, anybody come out of this culture? A few of you. If you love your brothers, you won't cause them to stumble. Which actually just sexualized you. Absolutely turned you into a sex object in the church. That we suppress because we suppress and don't want to talk about human sexuality in any kind of sacred or spiritual ways. We don't even have a language for that. So therefore, misogyny prevails. Do you see what I'm saying? The shadow in me gets projected. That's the problem out there, not in here. So I attack what's out there. Most serial killing in males, or most serial killing, let me, oh, okay, so, so there's also this thing of a, uh, wait, I'm still talking about the shadow. Let me get my mind straight. Here's another example. There's one from the church. Here's another example. Most serial killers are males who kill females. It almost always has a sexual component. And if you study the upbringing of most serial killers, they have a history of sexual shaming or regression. Or they lack healthy ways to express their own sexuality. Ted Bundy said, if you want to get rid of serial killers, get rid of pornography. While we're on the topic, pornography can provide someone a safer place of exploration of denied or suppressed sexual desires because there's not the element of relational risk. So actually... Pornographic addiction is the result, not of a sex drive that's out of control, but a sex drive that has been suppressed and shamed and is seeking expression because it hasn't been integrated in a whole and complete way into the person. Because it's been rejected, suppressed. It's evil, shaming. And, and then we think the way to help somebody break that addiction is just shame them more. All right. I, I knew this wouldn't be like, you know. We have a collective shadow. 
Now remember, this isn't good or evil, this is just polarity. We have a collective shadow, a group shadow. In other words, there are things that we as entire groups deny about ourselves and project onto others. So if you think about it, like there's this, when you don't own your shadow, you're contributing to a collective energy that's just out there. And then there are some souls who end up bearing the collective shadow and exalting it so that we can see what we've been denying about ourselves. Are you still breathing? So let's look at some of these throughout history. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler. Now here's what's interesting. History's written by... History's written by... The winners. So who are the great ones? The winners. And who are the villains? The losers. So Adolf Hitler in our culture still is an archetype of the worst kind of evil. But we call Alexander, Alexander the Great. He was just as evil, but Alexander the Great formed the foundation in many ways for Western society, so he's part of the victory side of Western society. And Adolf Hitler lost the war. And I guarantee you, because of the way human psychology works, had they won the war, five, six hundred years from now, he'd be Adolf the Great. That's the power of the shadow. Alexander the Great invaded cities and killed all the men, women, and children in his quest for power. Those who obeyed him were rewarded with treasure. Those who disobeyed him were brutally murdered. Genghis Khan... Listen to this. Wiped out 5% of the human population in the time that he lived. 5%. Today that would be equal to 375 million people. And then, of course, we're all familiar with Adolf Hitler. So let's just do something fun here. Let's take a quiz. Let's look at these guys who are bearing the collective shadow so we can see it. Ready? So we can see how evil they are. <laughs> how dark they are. How many men did Stalin's henchmen kill one day because they failed to support him? A, none. B, 200, those who failed to support Stalin. C, 1,000, those who failed to support Stalin and their families. 3,000. Those who failed to support Stalin, their families, friends, and neighbors. What do you think? Okay, let's go to the next one. How many people did Genghis Khan kill because someone decided to peek into his chest of treasures? A, none. He certainly wouldn't kill someone for merely a peek. B, 50,070. C, just the people who looked into the chest, or D, 250, the people who looked into the chest and their families? D, all right. How many people did the KKK kill in a frenzy before someone pleased them by killing a mixed marriage couple? None. The KKK loves all their followers and imposed no restrictions about interracial marriage. B, 100, C, 24,000, or D, none of the above? How many say, throw, throw out a letter, somebody? <laughs> How many say A? How many say B? How many say C? Any takers for D? Okay. I'd go with, with D myself. I, of course, I know the answers. <laughs> How many animals did the British guard kill in Africa in, a, in an attempt to please the queen? Sorry, I, I wrote that wrong. Not the king, the queen. <laughs> oh, where'd it go? Oh, Mike's on it. <laughs> it's a shadow, see? <laughs> Thank you, sir. None. The queen did not 
find pleasure in killing wildlife. B, two heads of cattle, two rams and two ravens. C, a herd of 100 sheep. Or D, 120,000 sheep and 22,000 oxen. What do you guys think? A? Hey, we have a British person here. So the, the British lady has spoken. <laughs> so how many of you agree with her and say none? I'm with you. How many say B? Anybody say C? Everybody's afraid to vote because they don't want to offend our, our British company. <laughs> How, any takers on D? No takers on D? Okay. How many Jews did the SS deliver to Hitler's concentration camps to be slaughtered? None. The Jews were God's chosen people. A. B. Half a million. C. Five million that he, Hitler, saw as a threat to his greatness, or D, 200, the number who served other leaders. C? All right. Let's go to the next one. How many Ethiopians did Idi Amin kill for his cleansing of the chosen people? A, 120,000 men were killed, 200,000 women and children were taken as slaves. B, 1 million, C, 2 million, D, none of the above. How many takers on A? Quite a few. B, C, any takers of D? All right. Let me get through this. I got to catch up here. Okay, I thought there was one more, but guess not. It's all right. Oh, speaking of cleansing and conquering, how many kings were maimed in the name of Alexander the Great? A, none. B, one had his legs broken so he couldn't gather an army. C, 70 had their thumbs and big toes cut off. Or D, two who had their tongues cut out. How many tickers for A? Everybody say C. A. Any takers for B? C? D? Alright, so I'm just, the, the point of that is just to kind of show you how, um, the collective shadow comes into play, right? Do we have the answers next on that mic? Cause I can't remember. Okay. Alright, but let's not go to them yet. Let's not go to the answers yet. Now here's the thing about this quiz. It was completely made up. It's completely made up. So actually, none of the answers were wrong because the questions, the incidents didn't even necessarily exist. So therefore, none of you were wrong in the choices that you made. And the flip side is none of you were necessarily Correct, except for maybe our deference to the Queen of England who didn't order any animals in Africa to be slaughtered or killed. <laughs> it was a made-up question. Because here's what I want you to see. The, the, the title of my message is this, The Shadow Side of God. See, we are fond of saying God is good, all the time, and all the time God is good. And Jesus loves me, this I know, and how do I know? For the Bible tells me so. So the Bible then becomes foundational to how we understand God. And so we put him in the best possible light. So let's, instead of doing these evil, horrible rulers... Let's go back and look at the questions, but let's insert God in place of the horrible rulers and see what the answers are. Are you ready? Oops, sorry, Mike. I, I'll let you. I'm not touching it. 
It's like when Julie and I both get home and we're both trying to open the garage with our garage door openers. We're separate cars. <laughs> How many men did Moses kill because they failed to say they supported God? D, 3,000. Exodus 32, verses 26 and 28. Let's go to the next one. How many men did God kill because someone decided to peek into the ark of the Lord? 50,070. 1 Samuel 6:19. How many people did God kill in a, in a plague before someone pleased him by ending a mixed marriage with the murder of the couple? 24,000. Numbers 25, 6 through 9. Next one. How many Israelites did God deliver to the people of Judah to slaughter? Half a million. Second Chronicles 13, 15 through 18. Notwithstanding the previous question, how many people of Judah were killed or enslaved because they didn't give God his due? 120, the answer is A, 120,000 valiant men, 200,000 women and children were taken as slaves. Second Chronicles 26, 6 through 8. How many kings were maimed in God's name? Seventy had their thumbs and big toes cut off. Judges chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Oop, back to the Holy Bible. Back to the Holy Bible. Okay, I think I'll just let my... So again, here's what I want you to see. With our personal... Shadow, here's what we do. We create our shadow because we want to be viewed in the best possible light. Both by others and to ourselves. So we have aspects of ourselves that are dark, that we suppress and deny and disown, because we want to put the best possible portrait out there of ourselves. In the Christian church, at least in America and really around the world, We've done the exact same thing with the God we believe in if we believe in the God of the Bible and we believe that the Bible is completely the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Because we say things like God is good all the time and all the time God is good, but yet I just gave you a very small sampling. When it was Genghis Khan, you're saying, oh, that's terrible. When it was the Queen of England, you're thinking, oh, that was, that's horrible. Adolf Hitler, the SS, it's terrible. We all agree. It violates our conscience. But then when you realize this is what the Bible tells you that God did, now all of a sudden we have to suppress that information. We suppress it. When was the last time you heard a message like this? When have you ever gone to church and somebody opened up the Bible and talked about God killing 50,000 some odd people? In a slaughter. In his love for humanity. We don't talk about these parts of the Bible. And you ask Christians, because I did this on Facebook. I, I've done this with leaders. This is the interesting thing. I've done this with leaders and I did it on Facebook. I just threw this question out on Facebook. Man, did people get mad? I said, how do you handle this, the dark side of God? And I used just a few examples, not even as many as I gave you this morning. And man, they came out of the woodworks. You're causing young Christians to stumble. Why are you doing this? You got a lot of new believers that are, that are, um, that are out there that are going to be reading this. Oh, so you want me to suppress? You see it? So the truth is, and this is just a small sampling of the atrocities committed in the name of God. The truth is, the Christian culture is in major denial about the shadow self. They do it to you. If you have a problem, what's their advice? Admit it and quit it. That's repentance. Admit it and quit it. We say the Bible is the absolute truth, the Word of God, without error in all its statements of faith, history, and science. 
It is, we believe it from Genesis to the maps. It's the source of our faith and the rule of our conduct. And you guys can agree with that if we just show you the good parts. We start bringing out some of the darker parts, not teaching. I mean, we don't teach or preach on these darker portions of the Bible. We literally hide them from people. And when people are confronted with this shadow, they, they, they spout out easy answers. Easy answers like, God is just. Our justice doesn't look like God's. His ways are higher than our ways. So we just throw out our, ju- our sense of justice. And we say, racial cleansing's okay. Punishing 20,000 Israelites who weren't in a mixed marriage for one couple who was in a mixed marriage. And when Phineas, the, the priest, kills the couple, then God takes the plague away. There's another place, we didn't look at it here, but there's a place where God punishes Israel with a plague because David decided to count how many citizens he had. So imagine you filling out the 2020 census and all of a sudden a huge plague comes on the United States and that's God's way of punishing the president. That's actually in your Bible. And we say, well, that's just. So when, when we put God up there, we have to suppress this shadow side and just throw all common sense out. Well, God's ways are not our, our ways. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Really? That's a higher thought? Like, we will justify genocide. And can I just tell you, I love what my friend Aaron Abke said. He said, anytime you're on the side of genocide, you are as wrong as, as you could be. No offense if there are any flat earthers out there, but he said, you're more wrong than flat earthers. You're so wrong. We don't know how to deal with this, so we just suppress it. Or this was one of my favorite ones. That's not my God. Okay, well just throw out your Bible then. Or don't tell me that you know that your God is good because it's in the book, because the same book says there's this other side to God. And that's major denial. Oh, that's not my God. But my God's the God of the book. All right, anyway. Because you're, you're, talk about a self-serving bias. You're using the Bible to describe God the way you want Him to be. And then saying, this is how we know how He is because this is what the Bible says about Him. Like, they don't deal with this in church. And I knew this would be kind of, this kind of go down about like this. Because I'm, Making us look at the shadow. The part we want to suppress and deny doesn't exist. And give easy answers to and minimize. One of my favorites is God did it because they were a mingled seed. They were Nephilim. Give me a break. (laughs) The truth is, this is not a new debate. The fact of the matter is, there was a sect of early Christians... They were called Gnostics. Everybody heard of Gnostics? Gnostics rejected the God of Israel. Marcion is a name that comes up because he rejected the God of Israel, but he was also the first one to propose a New Testament canon of Scripture. And he was the one who proposed that they be Paul's letters. Because they could not reconcile, the people closest to Jesus could not reconcile the God that Jesus was talking about and the teachings of Jesus with all the atrocities done by God in the Old Testament. So that caused them to completely reject the God of Israel by believing that he was a lesser evil God. This is what Gnostics believed. And this was a God that created matter, created evil, and is responsible for all of the atrocities. Jesus came then, the Gnostics say, to introduce a different and higher God that had not yet been introduced to humanity that was a God of benevolence and love. Oregon, one of the church fathers that I greatly respect, took the Old Testament as an allegory saying none of this stuff actually literally happened. It's speaking to us spiritually about spiritual enemies and various different, and he took various different allegorical spins on all those texts. But then he was later condemned 
by the church as a heretic for it, and they'll still spit that name out at you today if you try to suggest any of its myth or allegory. Or the, I mean, when you engage on levels with people who have just enough knowledge to be dangerous, I've been accused of being a Marcionite, I've been accused of being a Gnostic, but I don't let people write me off like that and intimidate me. I'm not intimidated by that. Or, well, you're just making the mistake that Oregon made or whatever. Universalist, I mean, I've been... But here's the interesting thing. So April DeConnick is a uh, Bible scholar. She, uh, one of the top PhD Bible scholars on first century and early Christianity. She's recognized as one of the top in the world. She presents a hypothesis about John's gospel, the gospel of John that it had Gnostic verses in it. And the truth is, John's gospel almost did not make it into our canon of scripture because there were some church fathers who argued that it had Gnostic teachings in it. Are you tracking with me? I hope this isn't boring you. John 8, 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice he says there, if God were your father. So he's saying the God that's my father is not the God that's your father. Now here's what it, that's our English translation, but here's what it actually says in the Greek. You belong to the father of the devil. Not you are of your father, the devil. It's not the devil that's the father. He's saying there's another creator out there who is the father of the devil that you belong to. So April says that's a Gnostic concept. Right there in the Gospel of John. It gets sanitized by the time it gets to you in English. Here's another example. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. See what he's doing there? He's saying the God that the Jews knew, the God that people knew is not the God, has not been disclosed. And Jesus came and disclosed. And so this is what caused, but, but beloved, this is what caused problems for the early church. Because the, you, the reason you had the whole Gnostic stream that later became condemned as heretics was because they could not read the Old Testament stuff. They didn't suppress and deny the shadow. They looked at it. And they said, we cannot reconcile this with the Abba, the Father of Jesus, that Jesus revealed. So they said, it must be like this. There must be a demiurge or a lesser God that created matter. So then they said, all matter is evil and all spiritual is holy and pure. And they sought through gnosis, through experiential knowledge, to escape the bondage of the material and experience the spiritual. And therefore, later, the death of Christ did not take on physical significance. It took on spiritual significance because the death of Christ was matter. And then they got into all kinds of things. His spirit wasn't suffering, but his body was and all kinds of stuff. But at least they were dealing with the issues. What happened was, later, the Gnostics become condemned as heretics by the state-supported church after Constantine. It's why your Nicene Creed, so the Council of Nicaea was the first council where the church bishops came together and said, this is what Christians believe. And it was put together by Constantine, who wanted to sanctify his own violent actions by making Christianity the religion of the state. So your creed starts out, we believe in one God, the Father, creator of all things visible and invisible. It's a direct statement to say the Gnostics are incorrect, and then the Gnostics were basically snuffed out. But see, the issue was they were dealing with the shadow. So then what happens is 
then our Bible gets put together and we say this is our Bible, but now we have a whole culture today that only talks about the good side of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, never tells you about any of these verses, never deals with any of these verses, gives you minimized, simplistic answers, because in the same way we have to put our best foot forward, we want to put God's best foot forward in the way we present him. And in the same way we have a shadow, the God of the Bible has a shadow. Hmm. All right. Let's look at this. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So in other words, you're dragged away not by something outside of you, something inside of you that's part of you, that actually God put in there, drags you away into a process of sin and death. See it? Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is coming above, is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, or who has no shadow. <laughs> he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind, the first fruits, everybody notice it says first fruits, of all that he created. Alright, so basically James is saying here, when you're, what's happening is, you think God is tempting you, you think God is testing you, you think God is trying to teach you something, because you're going through this. But what you don't realize is you, through your own inner person and the own disowning of your shadow, if you will, have given birth to all this death and garbage that's in your life. And you've disowned it and projected it onto God and say, God's tempting me. If you were writing today to charismatics, you'd say, the devil. See it? So what he's saying is, is that we as human beings disown our shadow, and project it onto God. And then we think all that stuff's coming from Him when really it's coming from us. Same thing Adam did. You see it? So I would say Jesus reveals maybe not a different God as much as He brings God out of the shadows or... He reveals God without the shadow of our own egos cast upon him. That Jesus was able to fully reveal the Father because he had no ego, he had no darkness that he was projecting onto God and then filtering his experience of God through. And he was the first one to be able to do that. Some of you are looking at me like you don't know what I just said. Here's one of my problems with Christian spirituality. It has no way to address the shadow side of ourself. It encourages us to disown it and to repress it because that's what we think sanctification and holiness and righteous living is. When I would suggest to you that you are half light and dark. Jekyll and Hyde. And if you don't judge it as good or evil, one is good and the other is evil, you don't have a problem. They're just polarities. That you and I are called as the children of God to balance and integrate within ourselves so that we can live a holy life. See what I just did there? Whole. Okay. Let's look at this. So Jesus, when he goes through the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about who are blessed. Now think about this, this, this God. The God that we just looked at in the quiz is a God of an empire. Like Alexander the Great or so. When I was asking you, when I put those empire names, those dictator totalitarian names in there, it made sense to you. 
So God is the powerful one. God is the one who is rewarding those, just like Alexander the Great, rewarding with great treasures those who are obedient, but killing and destroying those that are his enemies, no matter how close they are to him. Yes, Aaron. Yes? Jesus teaches something else in the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is the perfect... Let me say it this way. The Sermon on the Mount is the pathway Jesus gives us to deal with the shadows. And he starts it out not with blessed are the powerful. He starts it out with blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. We say righteousness, but we have the wrong idea of righteousness. We think it's obeying the law. The word there is actually justice. Equality, fairness. Blessed are the merciful. None of that looked very merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. I'm sorry, blessed are the peacemakers. And then he goes on and says, blessed are those who are persecuted by those who are in power. So all that stuff you want to suppress. I don't want to be seen as weak. I don't want to be seen as poor. I don't want to be seen as, you get it? Blessed are the peacemakers, not the warmongers. Hmm. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 43-48, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you are great, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not talking about moral perfection. He's talking about being more inclusive in the way you love and treat people. He's saying get out of the frame of duality that the, the enemy is out there. The other is out there. That's, that's the one we judge. That's the one. If we could just fix them, everything would be okay. If they just do right, everything would be okay. They're the ones that are messed up. We're right. We have God on our side. We have the truth. They're wrong, so let's attack them. And let's do it in the name of God. Jesus is saying, no, it's not like that. And he's also saying, the Old Testament is absolutely wrong. He's not saying, this is the inspired word of God and let's follow it. He's saying it's absolutely wrong. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says that God will withhold rain from the unjust and only bring blessing to the just. And Jesus contradicts the scriptures by saying God is not like that and it is self-evident. And there are people who would rather have a messed up God than a messed up book. That's how much we've idolized the thing. I'd rather say the, the book is completely without error and try to figure out how I can ex- explain away this God who has a dark shadowy side than say the Bible reveals the dark shadowy side of our religious idolatries and misrepresents God and say, and so we'd rather have a, a messed up God than a messed up book. That's how messed up we are. <laughs> So then we cherry pick verses that serve our own political ambitions to try to attack those that don't vote the way we want them to vote. Which is exactly why they make things like homosexuality an issue at the election box. But don't talk about any of the other sins. They don't talk about warmongering. They don't, well, we're pro-life unless it means we have to give health care to everybody. I'm sorry, I would be a hypocrite if I did not support the fact that our government has government programs because my kids are on Medicaid. And I'm going to tell you right now, if they weren't, I would not be able to afford for them to have access to the medical care that they need, including emergency visits that they need. So I'd either be broke or my kids would be dead. So why should I say I have access to that and nobody else should? Oh, but I'm pro-life. I don't believe in abortion. Messed up. Shadow. Alright. Jesus invites us, but do you see it? Be more inclusive. 
I don't just love people that believe like me and I hate them because they're the enemy and if they just act right, you are so deceived. What you're attacking in them is actually what's in you that you don't want to face. Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. What's he inviting us to do? Who can read that verse and say, I've never gotten angry? Who can read that verse and say, I've never attacked? But see, we, we, we look at the behavior that we've been able to restrain when someone else couldn't restrain it and we judge them for their behavior without recognizing that it is merely the byproduct. It is the, it is the sin giving birth of the desires that we all carry inside of us. And if we understand that I, I have that same potential to maim. I have that same potential to murder. I have the same potential to commit these atrocities because it's inside of me. And that's what Jesus is inviting you to see. He's inviting you to see that you are no better than them. <laughs> All right. See, it's hard for us because we don't want to look at this because we've been suppressing it. Matthew 5, 25 through 26. Watch this. So here's something he tells us very important. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I truly, truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Is Jesus talking about a physical court and a physical bondage? Is he talking about something out here? Is the adversary out there? He's talking about inwardly. He's talking about the structure of our psyche where we disown our shadow and it becomes our adversary and then another part of us sits in judgment of it. And it's the judge who actually cuts it off. So what he's saying is settle matters, agree, one translation says, agree with your adversary, come into harmony with that part of yourself that you don't like. Because if you don't, then what's going to happen is it's going to bring you to the judge and the judge is going to put you in prison. So basically what Jesus is saying is if you don't own the polarity within yourself, if you don't own your own shadow, you're going to live inside your own self-created prison. And the only way out is to make peace inside. So when I accept my adversary within me, when I accept and become fully reconciled to my shadow self, I get free from its imprisonment. And then finally at the end, he gives us a really important key. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Watch this. For with the same measure you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, why do you assume that it's God who's doing the judging? It's not God. It's self-judgment. What you judge in others, you have judged in yourself. And so the measure of judgment and criticism that you measure out there is the measure of judgment and criticism that you measure back here. When you judge others, you judge yourself. The flip side could also be said true. If you judge yourself, you judge others. Look at what he says. Why do you look, now watch this. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Both cast a shadow. A speck and a plank. Here's the problem. If I'm looking at you with a plank in my eye, what do I see? 
I see the plank. And I think it's in you. Oh, brother, you have a plank in your eye. Let me get it out. Because when you disown your shadow, you project it, and that's all you can see in other people. I remember working for a a company, a retail store, and there was a lady I worked with who was constantly suspicious of everybody that came in. They were robbers. They were stealing. And she was constantly trying to, angry, had a charge, constantly trying to catch the thieves that were ripping off the store. And guess what we found out? She was ripping off the store. When Jim Baker fell, who was his biggest accuser? I can't remember which one of the evangelists it was. Who then later was found in his car with his own prostitute. Was it Jimmy Swagger? You see it? So when we disown our shadow, this this stuff's important. If you disown it, you'll mistake it for God. If you disown it, it'll be all you see in other people, and you'll be attacking other people without realizing you're really attacking yourself. And the key to all of it is to let go of judgment. Or to realize it's not good and evil, it's polarity. Darkness and light. All right. Finally, what about this shadow side of God? And this is where I want to close. What if we allow for the human project to have spiritual progress or evolution? What if we allow for the human project to have spiritual progress or evolution? And we see Jesus as the key figure who was able to see God without the projection of shadows. Who offers us the way forward. The catalyst for our own spiritual evolution, not just personally, but collectively. In other words, would it be fair to say, that the Israelites some 6,000 years ago could only view God through the lens of their collective tribal shadow. And so therefore, what they did not like about themselves and their own empire, they disowned and projected on God as the representative of what was in them. And what if that was okay for that level of our spiritual evolution and maturing as the human race? Because remember, we looked at it in James. What are first fruits? First fruits are the early ripened fruit that signal the maturing of a later harvest. So built into that verse is the belief that humanity is progressing and maturing spiritually. What if we realize we are becoming and what we shall be we do not yet know? (laughs) I think that's somewhere in the Bible. What if together in our own spiritual journey we are participating in the spiritual progress of humanity... And every time we make our own spiritual progress, we are moving the entire project forward and we are making it easier for someone else to make progress, even if we never share our story with them. Because we are no longer contributing to the collective shadow and the collective consciousness in a negative way or in a spiritually immature way. (laughs) I wish I could just take a picture. I need to get my phone. Just take a picture of your faces and then flash them up for you. What if the biggest part of our spiritual project is to know and accept 
and in, and love yourself in the broad spectrum of the polarities that exist within you. That you love yourself accepting that broad spectrum of polarities even as you are loved by God. What if that was the goal? Too many of us are trying to change the world. When we try to change the world, we are projecting our shadow on the world and we're trying to save it from something that really is just in us. We're trying to heal the world when we can't even heal ourselves. And what if the goal, the first stage, let's say, of a truly spiritually mature person who carries the light of God is a person who has learned to fully know themselves in all ways, fully accept themselves in all their polarities, and fully love themselves even as God loves them. And living out of that place then becomes the place where you bear fruit. And what if the impact that you have in here is far more valuable to God and significant to God than any impact that you have out there? What if you're not called to be a history maker and a world changer and all that stuff that is Christian propaganda to get you to participate in our programs and give in our offering plate? And then put pressure on you to do something you can't do and you weren't called to do. The world was messed up before you got here. It's going to be messed up while you're here and it's going to be messed up when you leave. And the only thing you can really fix is you. And maybe that's as simple as that. But as long as you keep eating at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I know I'm going long. Judging yourself, judging others, Judging life, you're making no spiritual progress. Which is why Jesus said the key to all of it. See, he starts in Matthew 5. He goes through this whole progression. Matthew 7 is the end of the, is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So the key to all of it is, I brought all this stuff out, not so you could see it in other people, but so that you could see it in yourselves. And if you don't judge, you're going to be fine. Because without judgment, you can deal with the plank in your own eye. And once you deal with the plank in your own eye and you own it, then you're no longer seeing in other people what's actually in you. You're able to see what's actually in them. And when you can see what's actually in them, you see that there is far more right with people than there is wrong with people. So you see what's wrong with them is the speck in their eye rather than the plank that's messing up the whole world. If you have a, if you have a strong charge on some group of people or some person or some situation, it is a mirror to you that is showing you something, and that charge will not be resolved because I'm going to tell you right now, those people ain't going to change. And the failure to resolve that within yourself is going to cause you to see more and more and more and more of it, and you're going to live more and more frustrated, creating a, more and more prisons for yourself to, to, to just process through and walk through in life. And one of the biggest mistakes I think we've told people in the Christian church is once you die, you, 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 you go into hyperspeed of spiritual evolution. I mean, basically, you're a mess while you're here, but when you die, it's all good. What if it's not? What if you bring with you the state of being without the restrictions of the densities of this three-dimensional world of polarity that you're in? What if the polarities exist within your soul and you're here in a world of polarity to work them out? And what if when you die, you leave the world of polarity and it becomes a confused mess again? And what if that's hell? Because if it is, then everybody goes into the hell of their own making. And the hell of their own punishment, not something that God created. And if that's true, beloved, we're, we're, we got a problem in the church because we don't give people pathways on how to be honest and deal with it because we all have it in us. If you want to deny and sit here and tell me you're just sweet and loving and kind and whatever all the time, you are completely disconnected inside because I know you are a human being. And God put a hide inside of you just like he did inside of me. <laughs> and a jekyll. I was thinking about this. Think about, I'm going to close right here, but think about this. 
What if Tolkien, who was a Christian, and was writing in symbols and fantasy and myth in a way that speaks to the deep unconscious of our hearts? And what if he was showing us something with Gandalf the Grey and Saruman the White? Because here you have Saruman the White, totally white, totally light. And you have Gandalf the Grey, which is a mixture, a blend. And who's the real hero of the story? And who's the real villain? So the harder you try to just be light and suppress the darkness the more deceived and wicked you become. And the more you can stand in the gray, the more powerful your magic to not only transform yourself, but as a result of that, transform the environment in which you find yourself. And work magic for everyone who comes into that environment so that they can find the magic within themselves. Because if you can truly accept yourself, it helps other people have permission to truly accept themselves. That's my offering today. I hope it helps. Let's stand up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for gotten through this. We're going to spend some time here, so looking at this shadow side of God because we barely scratched the surface. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise today for your people, for who you are, the wonder of who you are. I bless each person that's here. Lord, I thank you for the light that is inside of them. Uh, But Father, we're not afraid of the shadow that that light casts either. And so I pray today that there will be a grace imparted into our lives by the Holy Spirit that will truly empower us to lay down the gavels of our judgment to quit sitting in the seat of Moses and to sit over our own lives with you on the mercy seat and examine the polarities within us without condemnation or judgment or guilt or shame. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.